I'm Rudy Rucker. I'm a writer. I live in California. And I've published about 30 books. And most of them are science fiction. And one of them is a historical science fiction novel called The Hollow Earth. It's, it's interesting because Isaac Newton proved very early on that if you're within a, a spherical shell, such as the hollow earth would be, something with this, like a tennis ball with a certain thickness, but there's nothing inside. The, if you sum up the gravity from every part of the shell, it will always cancel out. So in effect, you'll be weightless inside the hollow earth. And for reasons I, I don't fully understand, most of the writers about the hollow earth either weren't aware of this or chose to ignore it. For instance, in in Edgar Rice Burroughs's uh, Paralandro novels, they're always walking around on the inside. You know, it's sort of, they're stuck to the, the inside. They kind of assume the gravity of the part of the shell under you would hold you to it. But there's the whole rest of the shell that's pulling you up. So it's really a more interesting notion to think of this huge air-filled space where you have no gravity. It's like being in outer space with the benefit that you can breathe. It's often useful to find out about the science because that will suggest ideas that you might not have thought of. That's if you if you completely make it phantasmal, things that you've made up, you might miss some, some interesting possibilities. So in general, writing science fiction of any kind, I, I like to have a very, fairly solid underlying theory of it's it's it might be of course pseudoscience but something that a sort of logical framework that uh, gives me a trellis to grow the ideas upon I've been a, a devotee of the author Edgar Allan Poe for my whole life and Poe wrote a uh, really I think this would be called his only novel was the the journey of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket and this is about a man who sails towards the southern pole, towards the South Pole. And at that time, people were under the impression that there was a huge wall of ice, which is not really an inaccurate description of how Antarctica appeared. But there was a feeling that maybe they could get over the wall of ice, and then there might be something very interesting inside. And Poe's novel ends with his characters getting in close to the South Pole and they find what seems to be a giant hole. Well, then Poe runs out of steam or something, and at that point abruptly breaks off the novel. Now, I've always thought that the South Pole would be a, a, the, kind of a better place to have the entrance to the Hollow Earth than the North Pole, because there's something, Mother Earth, Gaia, it's this sort of feminine image, and you would expect to find the, the sort of womb-like uh, entrance or entrance to the womb down in the the nether regions of this this planetary god my characters they come to the south pole and it looks like it's solid and they're upset and then they're jumping up and down in, in anger and suddenly it turns out there's just a, a fairly thin sheet of ice and it breaks and they start tumbling down through this shaft that's going to be hundreds and hundreds of miles down before you get to the opening and here's a, a passage describing what they saw. The cliffs were yellow hot and closer than before. Even though there was rain all around us, we could see pretty clearly. Vast cataracts of lava were gushing out of holes in the cliff sides and drizzling down into lakes of fire. 
There were a few falls of water, too, huge surging gushers that issued, I supposed, from maelstroms or from undersea caves. As the water hit the lava, it would steam up with most of the vapor being sucked back up into other holes in the giant honeycomb structure of Mother Earth's steaming innermost flesh. Let me read you first a bit where they come out, they fall down the shaft, they come out, and what do they find? There's this huge hollow planet with no gravity, and there's a jungle on the inside. And since there's no gravity, it's a very thick jungle. So I'll read you a passage about that, and then we can, I'll tell you something about the center and the mirror earth. The tangled green band of the mild's thick jungle framed my view down into Earth's vast interior. It was pink and teeming with life, shading into mist in the distance. Flying creatures filled the air like schools of fish. Here and there larger creatures preyed on them. I could see three huge shell squid in the distance, also a large flapping animal resembling a skate or a ray. Despite the mist, I could see a good way up the sides of the interior surface around me, perhaps 200 miles. If the outside surface of thick rind we'd fallen through was earth, thought I, the inner surface might be called tray. So we have them on the, the inside of earth's rind and uh, jungly, and they're floating around, and they make things like swim fins so they can flap around in the air. But there's a According to Newton, as you get away from the Rhine, there will be a gentle force drawing you towards the center. Now, the big question is, how do you light up the inside of the hollow earth? And if you simply put a sun in the middle, that's not going to be a good idea, because the sun is going to have gravity, and everything's going to fall into it and, and burn up. But I, w I wanted to have something in there. Now, at the time I wrote the book, there was a fad for this toy that was, uh, it was like a, a blown glass ball, and then there were streamers of lightning coming out from a, an, an anode in the center of the thing. And you would see them in, in head shops and crystal shops. And if you put your finger on the glass, then there'd be the branching sparks would flow out in that direction within this hollow ball. So I thought that would be a perfect way to light the hollow earth. We'll have kind of flickering, not very hot, but streamers of light, sort of like northern lights things, streaming out from the center and, and touching down all over the earth at any given time. And that's uh, this sort of flickering pink light. Now, then came the question of what's, what's driving, what is the force that's driving this electricity? So then I had the idea, there has to be something at the center, some anomaly from which the energy is flowing. And then I came upon the idea of in high school physics, they showed us something called a Wimshurst machine, where they would, it's an old 19th century apparatus, where you rotate two disks against each other, and it creates static electricity, and then there's glowing and sparks. So I thought, what if we had a parallel Earth, or Earth in a parallel world, and if, the, if our Earth and that mirror Earth touched only at their centers, they're both hollow, they touch at the centers, and they're counter-rotating, and it creates some energy. So we have these giant streamers of, of light flowing in from the, the center of our hollow Earth to the inner surface, and from the mirror Earth from its center to its inner surface. So then, naturally, I had my characters fall towards the middle of the hollow Earth. And uh, I'll read you a little description of that. 
As we neared the 20th hour of our fall, the appearance of the planet's center changed drastically. Though we were falling more slowly than before, the center seemed to grow faster than ever, swollen by some mirage-like trick of space and light. The blue dots near the center could soon be seen to be immense floating water globs, jiggling irregularly. We dubbed them the umpteen seas. The umpteen seas. There were about 15 of them, I suppose. The average umpteen sea held the volume of one of our great lakes or of Lake Geneva. The region within the spherical shell occupied by the umpteen seas remained visually indecipherable. It was brightly lit with some stable dark objects and a curious lensing effect about the center. So they proceed on into the center and they find these giant sea cucumbers floating there. And they're a bit like H.P. Lovecraft's great old ones. And they're actually, they have these tendrils that are sort of emitting the, the, the streamers of light. And then my characters pass through and they end up on the, uh, eventually they make their way to the, the surface of the mirror earth. And then uh, the reason I wanted to do this to some extent was uh, Edgar Allan Poe was obsessed with the idea of the double. Of He wrote a, a famous story called William Wilson about a guy who was haunted by his double. And also, I haven't mentioned this yet, but the book is set in the 1800s, I believe, and a lot of the, uh, there's a big theme of, of race relations there because my, my main character starts out from a farm in the countryside in Virginia, and he's accompanied by a black man who had been a slave on his farm. And uh, the people who live at the, the very center of the hollow earth are black, and when they when they float up out of this ocean on mirror earth, it turns out being so near the center of the earth has basically tanned them so that my American character has become a black person. And then we have sort of a, a reversal where he's having to deal with life as a uh, as being black in uh in the United States where slavery is still a reality in the South. And so then there's a a sort of a final scene where Edgar Allan Poe encounters, encounters his double over there, and uh, with, of course, disastrous results. Thinking about the creatures, it's more like a, a CG effect. I'm thinking, what would be cool to have? And I don't worry terribly about the details of evolution. I, I want the creatures to be plausible. And probably the best creatures I had in this book... There was. I've always been fascinated by nautiluses. I, I love animals with tentacles. I, I have a cuttlefish in almost every one of my novels. And the nautilus has about 90 tentacles. And their shell is a, it's, it's basically full of air. And by controlling how much air is in the shell, they can descend. They'll, they'll descend 1,000 feet at night and go down and feed on the, the very deep marine areas. So I had the idea, what if we had a nautilus that was quite large, like maybe 50 feet across. And its shell was full, not of air, but of hydrogen. So it could hover like a balloon. And that was a good fit for the novel because, of course, in those days, they were fascinated by ballooning. So this thing, uh, I call it a shell squid, or later they also call it a balula. And naturally, it eats human beings. So when they land on the shore when Poe and my hero and his friends land on the shore of Antarctica, 
one of these, these shell squid or Balula comes up out of the water and then eats most of the crew. And then uh, they're, they're using, they have a hot air balloon and they're using that to go to the center and this thing is chasing them. So that's, uh, that's one creature that's very cool. And another creature is something that I just, really I just made up out of thin air. It's called a shrig. And I've always liked pigs. I, I, like, I don't know, I've always thought they were amusing. You might even say pigs are my totem animal. And then a shrig is something that's, it's a pig's head in front, but the back of its body is a shrimp, like a, a sort of segmented shrimp's body. And so these are good creatures that are flying around inside the hollow earth, the shrigs. And they're, they're of course, deadly enemies of the, the flying shell squid. And uh, the shrigs, they, they, their locomotion is, is kind of strange. They, they basically use a, a rocket. That is, they eat so much garbage that then they accumulate vast amounts of methane in their body. And they have flints that they can strike at, at their rear end, and they can generate this this huge flame that shoots them along, <laughs> so they can surprise an un- unsuspecting shell squid. The whole idea of science fiction about star travel sometimes, to me at least, it feels a little played out. It's uh, it's maybe wildly unrealistic. In any case, it's. Uh, it's almost like people, like Jules Verne or earlier writers talking about people flying to other stars in, in wooden ships. And we have this idea that our steel ships would get us there. And if we ever do get there, it probably would be by some different form of, of, of travel. Um, Hollow Earth, uh, one thing I liked there that it was a sort of science fiction where the, the space you're traveling was the geographic space of Earth itself. That's sort of a peculiar genre where you find these sort of hidden valleys or the, these Shangri-La-type places on Earth where, where things are very different. H.G. Wells wrote some of those too, like the, the Land of the Blind. And there's also another way that uh, what I've been doing in my recent novels, I want to travel to a different world. Uh, that's generally almost all of my novels start with somebody who's a somewhat countercultural or not really a hugely successful person finding a way to travel to another world. And uh, what I've been using recently is something more like a hop, you know, that's hopping to a, a parallel universe, and then you manage to come out in some other interesting place. So that's, that's a method that's fairly useful. The psychological thing that you mentioned, uh, burrowing down into the cyberspace of perhaps human consciousness or the, the collective group mind. That's another approach that, that can be used. It's, uh, it's risky, though, but it's sort of hard to get people emotionally invested in a novel that is set, in some sense, in somebody's dream world. Because uh, you know how it is if somebody wants to tell you a dream, you can barely listen to, to more than two or three minutes of it. I like the early writer, uh, John Cleves Sims, just simply because he was such a maniac. He lived in Cincinnati, and he wrote a couple of novels. Well, they, they were sort of novels. They were presented as, as true journals, which is some, a trick that I used with my Hollow Earth. And he, uh, he actually made friends with this guy, Joshua Reynolds, or Jeremiah Reynolds, I forget the first name. And they petitioned Congress to to do a serious search for the hollow earth. And that indirectly led to them funding the 
the U.S. exploring South Seas Exploring Expedition, which was the first time that they made a systematic effort to look at everything in the South and see what they could find. And uh, Sims's writing is, is sort of wonderfully bizarre and strange. Um, Jules Verne wrote a novel, Journey to the Center of the Earth, but that's, I mean, I like Jules Verne, but I think as a hollow earth novel, it's just completely disappointing. It's really just a description of some people crawling around in a cave, and then they find a big lake down there, and there's really no aspect of it which, which gives you a feeling of being in the hollow earth sort of fringe ufology concept of the hollow earth that i mean clearly the ufos are going to have their bases inside there and they'll just dart out shooting out of the ocean and i i like things like that um i always feel like there hasn't been really enough science fiction about these really crazy ufo ideas um i i think there's a psychological appeal to the hollow earth i, I think I, th- I kind of touched on this before it's a little it, I think it has something to do with the return to the womb. I mean, Earth is the mother, and if you could go back inside her, everything would be pleasant and safe, and it would be a nice place to be. So I think that's one aspect. The There are still true believers in the hollow Earth. As I mentioned earlier, I published my novel, The Hollow Earth, with a, a sort of a frame tale. I present it as if it's the true journal that I found in the library at the University of Virginia. And then I just have an afterword that uh, I, th- I think this is important and we really should make an effort to, to get into the hollow earth. So once in a while I will get a letter from somebody and they're sort of they're urging me on and why is it that the journey, <laughs> the expedition hasn't yet been launched and what can we do to help get it going? Because people want to believe it. But I used to enjoy joking about that with my children. I mean, whatever I would saw see, like we would be out skiing and you'd stick a ski pole in the snow and you'd notice that the light in the hole was blue. And I would say, more proof, as if more proof were needed, that the earth is hollow. <laughs>